Today with us we have Lisa Ouellette from Stanford Law School. Her scholarship addresses empirical and theoretical problems in intellectual property and innovation law. She is a trained physicist and she uses that training to explore policy issues such as the value of scientific disclosure in patents, the patenting of federally funded research under the Bayh-Dole Act, which happens to be what we're discussing today, uh, and she studies many other things such as the polarized public discourse over patents and the integration of patent law with other levers of innovation policy. Lisa will be discussing a couple of recent articles that she's written on the topic of university patenting, particularly in the biomedical field, and the Bayh-Dole Act. So today we're talking about patents on federally funded inventions. Universities have turned, some say, into patenting machines. And we're going to explore uh, with Lisa how this has affected biomedical innovation. A lot of the issues that we are discussing today hinge on a piece of legislation that was enacted 37, almost 38 years ago. Um, it has been called the most inspired piece of legislation to be enacted in America over the past half century, but it has also attracted considerable criticism. So Lisa is here to talk to us about this piece of legislation, the Bayh-Dole Act. Hi, Lisa. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for talking to us about university patents and Bayh-Dole. Can you please start by taking us back to 1980 and the beginning of Bayh-Dole? Sure. So the, the Bayh-Dole Act basically lays out the rules for when you can patent the results of federally funded research. And I mean, just for context, the federal government provides over $100 billion every year in direct research support, most of which goes to universities and other nonprofits and federal research institutes. And the basic idea of the Bayh-Dole Act is that these institutions can patent the inventions resulting from this funding with various restrictions like a preference that the results be domestically manufactured and a requirement that the patent rents be reinvested in science research and education. And it's led to a explosion in university patenting. Though it's worth noting that many universities were also filing patents before 1980, but there were a lot of uncertainties about when they could do this. So what Bayh-Dole really did was help standardize the rules and it's won lots of praise uh, as a huge success, as you noted, including being called the basis of the biotech revolution with proponents pointing to all kinds of new products and new drugs that have emerged from Bayh-Dole and, and claiming it's produced hundreds of thousands of jobs and saving millions of lives. But it's also been subject to lots of academic criticism that uh, we can talk about today. Okay, sure. So let's unpack um, that a little bit. And maybe let's start with the inner mechanics of Bayh-Dole. So if you have a particular type of technology, say a biomedical technology that has been funded with public money, what happens next? So the university can then file a patent on that invention. Uh, basically, all university researchers will assign their patent rights to the university. So the researcher doesn't own the patent, but the Bayh-Dole Act requires the university to pay the researcher some amount of the patent licensing fees that it brings in. So if you're a engineering professor at Stanford, you invent something, you go to Stanford's technology transfer office and tell them I have this great new invention, I think it has commercial potential, they might then seek a patent on it. And if they bring in licensing revenue, then you as the researcher get some of that revenue in return. Okay. And you mentioned some uh, restrictions that Bayh-Dole places um, on licensing of federally funded inventions too. Yeah, so it has a, a preference for domestic manufacture. So unless you can show that 
manufacturing in the United States isn't feasible. You should be licensing uh, to U.S. firms. And, and it also has the requirements that the institutions that are getting these patents, that they reinvest the money that they're getting in science, research, and education. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so Baidol was devised to accomplish a number of goals. So in other words, um, there were several justifications that were provided at the time for Baidol to be enacted. And then more recently, scholars like you have provided other types of justifications for Baidol that we have not really been paying attention to. So what is the most common, or say we're back in 1980, what was the major justification for enacting Baidol? You've mentioned uncertainty pre-1980 about whether universities could patent uh, or not these inventions, but what was the most compelling justification at the time? So so the main justification was this idea that for some kinds of inventions, you need to have patent rights on them in order to get them commercialized. And this makes a lot of sense if you're thinking about something like a pharmaceutical, a typical drug, and, and much university patenting is in the biomedical space. So if a researcher, a biomedical researcher at a university develops a promising new drug that seems like it might treat cancer, then their university can get a patent on it and license that patent to a pharmaceutical company that can then invest in the clinical trials necessary to get FDA approval for the drug, which are actually the much more expensive part of the drug development process. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that if if the university weren't able to patent it and give that to the the pharmaceutical company, no one would have an incentive to invest in the clinical trials because pharmaceutical companies regularly screen drugs out of their pipelines when they don't have enough patent protection. This is why Baidol was enacted. It's in the statutory text and in the legislative history. It's the main ground on which Baidol defenders rest their case today. And it's recognized as the best justification for it by pretty much every legal scholar who's written about it, including Becky Eisenberg and Artie Rye, Mark Lemley, as well as economists like Suzanne Scotchmer and Bobin Sampat. Mm-hmm. So when is the commercialization justification actually not applicable or not as strong uh, a motivation? So, so it clearly makes sense for some kinds of inventions, like pharmaceuticals, as I described. But there are, are many inventions where it seems like exclusive patent rights aren't needed to get it commercialized. One famous example of this is patents owned by Stanford, uh, the Cohen-Boyer patents on early recombinant DNA technology. And these are the basis of the biotech industry, very influential. They were licensed non-exclusively to over 400 firms. and made over $255 million in uh, licensing fees for Stanford. But from a a commercialization perspective, it seems clear that exclusivity wasn't needed to get these commercialized because everyone wanted to use them. It was a useful technology for all kinds of future biotech developments. So from that perspective, that $255 million just seems like an unnecessary tax here on the early biotech industry. And and this isn't an isolated example. Data from the Association of University Technology Managers indicates that over 60% of patent licenses issued by universities are non-exclusive, showing that exclusivity isn't always needed for commercialization. Okay, okay. Uh, But in addition to um, commercialization, there are other justifications for Baidol, right? Yeah, there, there are a number of other theories, and the scholars who've emphasized commercialization have said that they don't make much sense in the university context because university scientists don't need incentives to invent, and they're going to disclose things anyway, and Baidol isn't a very efficient means of revenue generation. But I think that we now need to, for these things 
like Cohen Boyer and these things where exclusivity isn't needed for commercialization, we need to think about do some of these other theories actually uh, have some traction such that they could explain why it makes sense for universities to patent these inventions. Okay, so let's just go through some of those other theories of Bidol that you've just mentioned. So, for instance, the ex-ante incentives um, theory. How does that uh, fare in this context, especially because we're talking about inventions that have been developed already with public money? So how weak is the ex-ante incentive theory here? It's, it's definitely less persuasive in the university context. I mean, it, it's the main justification for patents in general, but for university professors, they have a lot of strong independent reasons to invent. Uh, they've already gotten the grant, they want to get prestige and tenure and to publish their results. So many patent scholars have said that this isn't needed for university inventions, and that in fact, the uh, patents might direct people away from more socially valuable basic science. But there's other scholars who've argued the opposite, saying, well, these, these patent incentives actually cause the researchers to do more research. It's one additional incentive that uh, incentivizes research, and they'll publish that research. So they'll lead to more publications, more research being done, and it just is an extra additive incentive in that context. The problem is there's not a lot of empirical evidence on this, and it's a very difficult problem to study. So I've started working on a empirical project with this with a, uh, another scholar, Andrew Tutt, the basic idea of our project is to take advantage of variations in how much universities share royalties with inventors to see if we can see how that affects researchers in terms of both patents and publications. We're still in the data gathering stage on this, but we've created a, a data set of about 150 university patent policies with a lot of variation over time in how much the inventors actually get of those patent revenues. And I should mention that in addition to that, you've been doing quite extraordinary work in mapping all these types of justifications for Baidol that we've been discussing. So for instance, the two that we have tackled so far, uh, commercialization and incentives, um, they are discussed in, I think, your most recent article, the Cornell one, is that it? Yeah, I have an article in the Cornell Law Review with Ian Ayers, a professor at Yale, basically arguing that for Baidol defenders who say, well, uh, maybe patents aren't needed for commercialization of some inventions like the Cohen-Boyer ones, but there's no good way to sort out these unusual ones from the bulk in which they're needed. So we have a, an article called The Market Test for Baidol Patents saying, this isn't right, there is a way you could sort them out, and we need to think about uh, some of these other theories and whether those could provide sufficient justification. And we'll get to your proposed market test in just uh, one moment. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to just run through the other couple of theories that you've proposed, both in the paper and that you've already mentioned here, such as uh, revenue generation and the disclosure aspects of Vidal. So could you talk a little bit, please, about the revenue generation argument? Yeah, so in another potential justification for Vidal is that it's a way for universities to raise revenue. They come up with good inventions and then they get licensing fees and that gets reinvested in science research and education and so that's potentially a, a positive aspect of Baidol. Uh, this theory has been criticized by scholars who say that most universities don't actually make money from their tech transfer offices. Many of them are barely making money or even operating in the red. So it's clearly not a very efficient revenue generation mechanism. Overall, if you look at survey data from the Association of University Technology Managers, the gross licensing income being brought in is greater than the legal fees of running these offices. So overall, it's generating revenue. It's not a super efficient way of doing this. 
though maybe in the era of declining federal research funding and lots of concern that's going to be cut even more, that this is a second best solution as an additional way to get some money for university research. Mm -hmm. And what about the disclosure function? And you, you've done, besides the, this most recent article, you've done uh, a ton of work in this particular field. So how does that fare under Bidol? Yeah, so I, I'm super interested in the role patents play in disclosing information about inventions and whether other researchers then look to the patent literature. I had an article in Nature Biotechnology this spring with some survey data I did of scientists, including university scientists, suggesting that many more of them than people thought actually do look to the patent literature as a source of technical information. But if we think about this as a potential justification for why we give patents to universities on publicly funded research, it makes less sense in that context because university researchers already have very strong incentives to disclose their results. They want to be publishing because that's necessary to get additional grants and tenure and prestige and the same reasons they have incentives to invent in the first place. Okay. And then finally, the most recent argument put forth by scholars, by yourself and by Daniel Hamill at University of Chicago, is that there's an international component that until now has pretty much been neglected in analysis and in scholarship. Isn't that right? Yeah. The, the short version of this argument is that this overlooked benefit of Bidol is that it allows the U.S. to internalize foreign benefits from its grant spending. And for the most part, people haven't paid attention to foreign patenting by U.S. universities. To the extent they have, it's been from scholars concerned about how these patents impede access to medicines in developing countries, which is a, a real problem and something I'm also concerned about, but it's not the primary impact of foreign patenting by U.S. universities. Daniel and I couldn't find any data on this, on how much universities are actually patenting abroad. So we work with some economists at the World Intellectual Property Organization to gather data and as is probably no surprise, it's much more common in high-income countries than in developing countries. And in those countries, I think the, the distributive critique about access to medicines doesn't uh, apply. And also the concern that the public has already paid for these inventions through grants and thus shouldn't have to pay for what Daniel and I call the patent shadow tax of higher prices on these inventions. That doesn't apply to patents in foreign countries because those consumers haven't already paid for the grants. They don't pay U.S. taxes. And so have, from a distributive justice perspective, having patents on them might seem attractive it, to have consumers who benefit from U.S. developed drugs in Norway returning some of those rents to the United States. And it also might then uh, increase the amount that the U.S. spends on research in the first place because it can internalize some of these foreign benefits. So we go into a number of the counter arguments and nuances to that, but we think it's a benefit that needs to be on the table when we're weighing the overall impact of the Bidol Act. Mm -hmm. And now that we've gone through most of the justifications for Bidol, where do you stand in all this? So is it really the most inspired piece of legislation? Is it a failure or is it something in between? And how do we fix some of the shortcomings? So I think it's really a more nuanced story, something in between. I think it is very important for pharmaceuticals and other inventions where having a patent incentive is needed to get it commercialized. And at this point, I'm still agnostic on the role of ex-ante incentives. I'm excited about this project I'm working on with Andrew Tutt and curious to see what we're able to find from that. Um, I mean, I think you could frame all of these projects as being about like, well, when should universities patent, but if you move up another level of abstraction, they're really about when does it make sense to combine different innovation policies, which is something I've been working through in a series of papers with 
Daniel Hemmel, and I could spend a whole separate podcast episode talking about that. But I think there are many benefits to offering as the government multiple policies for innovation that innovators can take advantage of. And incidentally, if you want to come back and discuss that other piece of yours on the Texas Law Review with with Daniel, we'd be happy to have you. But today, if I could just ask you one more question, and that's about the solution that uh, you and Ian propose in this latest paper, the Cornell one. Um, So you talk about a market test for Baidol. So if really Baidol has played a much more nuanced role, how can we fine-tune things uh, and make sure that, as you mentioned, that we can sort through the types of inventions that really benefit from exclusivity and the ones that do not? Yeah, so the the question Ian and I focused on is is whether it's really possible to sort out inventions that require exclusivity, and our answer is yes, that you can test the market to determine how university patents can be commercialized at the least social cost in terms of the deadweight loss of above marginal cost pricing, these higher prices from this patent shadow tax. So the simple version of our idea is that universities shouldn't be allowed to offer exclusive licenses on their patents if there is someone who's willing to commit to commercializing those inventions under a non-exclusive license for a nominal cost to cover the cost of patenting. There's lots of ways you could structure this. You could say that it's only triggered when a firm objects to an exclusive license. We also go into much more complicated versions where it's not just a binary test, but you actually auction to see who will commercialize for the least exclusivity. So if one pharmaceutical company says, we'll do the clinical trials on this drug if we can have a 15-year patent life rather than a 20-year patent life, then from society's perspective, that's better. You The patent's gone five years earlier and there's fewer costs from that. So we think this is one way that until you have the other justifications for Baidol being fleshed out more. And as long as we're relying on commercialization theory as our main defense of it, that is a way to make sure we're only having the cost of patents where they're really necessary for commercialization. Okay. All right. I think that's a really interesting proposal. And also, I think we all look forward to seeing the results of the work you're now doing uh, with Andrew Ted. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us here at the Jaharis podcast. Sure. Thank you for having me. This was Lisa Willett from Stanford University discussing patents on federally funded inventions and the Baidol Act. You can listen to this episode on the J. Harris podcast website or on iTunes.